This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our task tonight is to connect one sacrament with three virtues. We should ask why we would want to do that. And very simply, it's because within those uh, virtues and with that sacrament, God draws us nearer to himself and we draw near to God. It's kind of a both-end relation. God draws, us, draws himself toward us and draws us to himself. And we cooperate in that. So our overall theme tonight literally is God. We may be talking about the Eucharist, we may be talking about the theological virtues, but the happy middle in all of that, the central point is God. It's the divine life. It's how the Eucharist is the closest that God comes to us on earth at this time, and it's the closest that we come to God at this time. In the Eucharist, we have Christ's substantial presence, which compared to the other six sacraments of the Eucharist is the most special because in the other sacraments, Christ gives us his power. He works on us. But in the Eucharist, he doesn't just work on us. He is also substantially present to us. It's an important difference there. It's a difference, literally, that we have been learning over COVID times between being physically present, fully present to a person, in-person presence, as compared to, let's say, for instance, no offense to the good people on Zoom, Zoom presence. Or sending a postcard, for instance. You can say, I love you, to your spouse, to your boyfriend, your girlfriend, in person, and it means something more in person than if you send a postcard, or if you send a text message, or an email. God is also the focus of not just the Eucharist, but the theological virtues. Those virtues, faith, hope, and charity, that draw us, draw our powers to a supernatural level in order to focus on God, and indeed to attain God. This gives us beatitude, happiness. Beatitude is a key word that will recur this evening. Beatitude basically is being drawn up into God's own life. It's our human life being transformed and elevated, participating in the divine nature. And for us in our current stage of salvation history, the Eucharist and the theological virtues preeminently bring about this divine transformation, our human life and the divine life. Now, in terms of what we're going to do this evening, we want to uh, look at the Eucharist, faith, hope, and charity through the lens of St. Thomas Aquinas, because St. Thomas is the patron saint of this uh, te um, Texas State University chapter of the Thomistic Institute, so it's very fitting to look at what St. Thomas says. It's also very fitting because Thomas is a great synthesizer of Catholic theology and philosophy. He brings together many insights from those who preceded him in the 12 centuries of Christian life that preceded him, and he has served as a foundation for so much magisterial thought in the centuries that have succeeded him. So if you look at the handouts, uh, at those um, titles that are underlined, we're going to explore our theme tonight in a couple of stages. We'll first look at the theological virtues in general. Then we'll look at the Eucharist in general. Then we're going to step through each of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, and how they specifically 
uh, intermingle with the Eucharist. And then we'll look finally at how St. Thomas Aquinas may give some takeaways to Texas State students. What would St. Thomas say to Texas State Bobcats if you were here? I'll try to channel our, our inner St. Thomas uh, this evening. Let's look now at the theological virtues in general. We human beings have powers, the intellect and the will, that need to be perfected through action over the course of time. When we have uh, a baby uh, in our presence, we say, this is fantastic, it's wonder wonderful, everyone coos and ahs about the baby, rightfully so, we are pro-life, we celebrate life, but we also want that baby to grow. We want that baby to be perfected. Even a baby who is baptized and has become a saint at the moment of that baptism, still we want to proceed past the terrible twos because even babies who are baptized and the terrible twos are rambunctious. We want them to learn self-mastery. We want them to grow intellectually and volitionally into older saints, not just baby saints, but mature saints, adult saints. That's what happens in the life of the virtues. We perfect our intellects and will through human actions, and we develop habits. Not just kind of rote habits, kind of like mindless habits, but willed habits. Habits wherein we cooperate in order to develop traits, dispositions toward good action. I understand that you've been studying uh, the virtues uh, this semester here in a, a kind of book club. That's fantastic. It's great. I hope to hear some of your insights uh, later after the talk uh, to see what you have been learning about the virtues. In terms of what St. Thomas says about the virtues, and I understand you've been studying St. Thomas and the virtues, so again, you could probably teach me. Uh, for St. Thomas, a virtue uh, is a constant disposition that brings about an easy action with joy. One is able to do a good action promptly uh, uh, with a certain uh, inclination, and one does it joyfully. The theological virtues allow us to use that human potential of our intellects and will in a supernatural fashion, wherein God elevates our powers to be able to attain Him. So, as St. Thomas says in this first quotation I put on your handout, quote, through virtue, man is perfected toward those actions whereby he is ordered to beatitude, his happiness, his fulfillment. Now, man's beatitude or happiness is twofold. One indeed is, one indeed is proportionate to human nature, toward which, namely, man can approach by means of his natural principles. For instance, one could be a great baseball player or football player, which is natural principles. But the other uh, means toward happiness is a beatitude surpassing man's nature, toward which man can approach by the power of God alone, by, by a kind of participation of the divinity, about which it is written in 2 Peter, that by Christ we are made partakers of the divine nature. And because such beatitude surpasses the capacity of human nature, man's natural principles, which enable him to act well according to his own capacity, do not suffice to direct man to this same beatitude. One can be a great football player, but one that does not, by being a great football player, attain God naturally. We need God's help. Thomas continues. 
It is necessary for man to receive from God some additional principles whereby he may be ordered to supernatural beatitude, even as he is directed to a connatural end by means of natural principles, albeit not without divine assistance. Now, such like principles, the supernatural ones, are called theological virtues. First, because their object is God, inasmuch as uh, through them we are ordered a right to God. Second, because they are infused in us by God alone. Third, because these virtues are not made known to us save by divine revelation contained in the sacred scriptures. So, Thomas is saying we need to be boosted up. How are we boosted up? By God. To what, to what are we boosted up? To God. And how do we know about that? Only again from God in his divine revelation. So, our great uh, Texas State uh, football player could be fantastic. He could beat, I understand, the big rival is University of Texas San Antonio. Is that right? Okay, so he t drives down I-35. He's been practicing a lot. He goes and scores 100 points. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot of points. <laughs> he scores uh, five touchdowns. He's running back five touchdowns against uh, San Antonio. No offense to any San Antonio people here. Uh, and wins the game. Fantastic. He's a hero. But he's a hero just on the natural plane. God can raise us and wants to raise us to a supernatural plane through faith, hope, and charity so that we're heroes not just on the natural level, but on the supernatural level, so that we're working at God's level. That's the important difference between the virtues, for instance, of justice or prudence that any human being can have and the difference of what's going on in the life of a saint. So in a nutshell, for each of the virtues that we're going to talk about tonight, uh, faith, hope, and charity come from God, lead to God, and are known to us only by God. If I could just summarize each of those virtues very, very quickly. With the virtue of faith, God raises our intellect to see him as he is. Not just as the creator, but as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he who creates us and redeems us for personal friendship with him. Now, without faith, we can know a lot by reason. It's great. We can know various truths about God. We can know that God exists. We can know that he is only one, that there's only one God, that, there's, that this God is true and good. That's all great. It's wonderful. It's more than what the atheist wrongly denies. But reason is limited. It can only tell us so much about God. Beyond reason, God's revelation adds new data and new possibilities. And the human virtue of faith is our divine acceptance of that supernatural aspect of reality. That's faith in a nutshell. God um, elevates our intellect to know him as he is. And he does so through the scriptures, for instance, through divine revelation, through the teaching of the church. And the virtue of hope, God aids our will and somewhat our intellect to trust in union with God as our final happiness and beatitude in heaven. So God raises our outlook on life, if you will, so that we recognize that scoring five touchdowns against San Antonio is not the end-all and be-all. 
It's very nice, makes for a nice Saturday uh, afternoon in Texas. But our final happiness is union with God in heaven. God raises us to have that outlook. Finally, in charity, the virtue of charity, God aids us to have actual friendship with him, actual union with him, both now and perfectly in heaven. We're going to spend much more time on charity later, but in a nutshell, it's about friendship and union with God now and in heaven. We can also see this in a quotation that I'm going to skip, but the second quotation where St. Thomas gives in a nutshell how the theological virtues play out with faith, hope, and charity, uh, as I've just explained. That's quotation number two in the middle of page one on your handout. Let's now turn to the Eucharist. The Eucharist, uh, which is given to us in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the Mass is called the Eucharist as well, the Eucharist is also the stable presence of uh, Christ uh, in the sacred host and the precious blood. The Eucharist has a lot of dimensions to it. And as a way to schematize that, I have drawn in my best drawing a Thomistic rendering of what's going on, what's, what are the dynamics, what are the realities of the Eucharist. And I have that on the bottom of page one. There's a lot going on here. Basically, this structure, though, helps us to unpack and distinguish the various elements, the depths of the Eucharist, and the movement, the dynamism involved in the Eucharist. First off, we begin at the left, the bottom left. We have the physical matter that is used in the Eucharist, bread and wine. Now, I'm going to point out that bread and wine uh, that are used in the Eucharist don't just kind of drop out of heaven to us for the Mass. We have to put in effort in order to bring them to the Mass. Someone, a farmer, had to farm the wheat that is then brought together by the baker in order to bake bread. That bread has a certain signification for us, a certain meaning to us. It means eating. It means health. It means uh, having the wherewithal to survive on a daily basis. We as Americans tend to treat bread a bit cheaply, uh, perhaps because we have so much uh, good food in the bountiful country that, in which we live. Got the wonderful cows, as I saw on the road coming down, so that we can have not just uh, bread, but hamburgers. Uh, but think about a good, hearty piece of bread, not just American Wonder Bread. American Wonder Bread is good, it's wonderful, it's amazing, however they made it. Uh, but think of your favorite artisanal bread. It's got substance to it. It's got something that you comment on. It's not just something that you just kind of like pull on out and make a quick sandwich and kind of Get it over and done with. That's the impetus, that's the gift of life that bread signifies for us. Same sort of thing with wine. If we think about wine, lots of grapes have to be um, drawn and worked into a wine. Wine, if we're uh, honest about it, involves a kind of alcoholic happiness. 
Now, of course, drunken only uh, in all legality. Uh, for those uh, who are of you know around the year twenty-one years old, but there's a certain happiness that's given with wine, and that's part of the point. As the Psalms say, the Lord gave us wine to cheer man's heart. That too signifies the divine goodness, the divine bounty that he gives to us for our happiness through this life. All of these are great signs that Christ himself used to institute the Eucharist at the Last Supper when he took bread and wine and said, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood. And the Catholic priest uses those same words at the Eucharist, as I put in the bottom of the handout there, the consecration of the Eucharist uses those same words that Christ used at the Last Supper in order to transform what is, looks like and was ordinary bread and wine into, if we go diagonally, up and to the right on your handout, the real presence. The real presence is the affirmation, very simply, that this is Jesus. The Eucharist is Jesus. What looks like, what tastes like, what smells like bread and wine, in fact, no longer is bread and wine. It has been transformed, transubstantiated. The substance, the essence, the whatness of bread and wine is no longer there. We only have what are called the accidents, the appearances, the qualities of bread and wine. But underneath that, we have Christ himself. In this, Catholics take Christ and his scriptures seriously. We go to John 6, for instance, where Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he, so he who eats me will live because of me. Catholics understand those words from Jesus in John 6 as talking about the Eucharist. Jesus foreshadows what he gives us at the Last Supper. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the light when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. We take those words literally. But to understand them, we make distinctions. We make a distinction between what is called substance and what is called accent. Again, substance, the whatness, the inner or the underlying reality. Talking about that little baby again, little baby Joey or Jane, maybe, I don't know, uh, coming out of the womb, they say, oh, baby was, uh, you know, I don't know how many inches, 12 inches long, let's just say, and 
I don't know what's a good birth weight. Uh, eight pounds, eight pounds, uh, eight ounces. There you have it. Okay, fantastic. Now, uh, eating those hamburgers, uh, good hamburgers here in Texas. Uh, John, well, let's just focus on John. We don't want to talk about Jane because uh, we're not about weight or you know size. But um, John becomes a bit bigger than eight pounds eight ounces when he is. Uh, 40 years old, eating Texas hamburgers. And we expect that to be normal. We want that to happen. We don't want John to stay 8 pounds, 8 ounces, and 12 inches long. We want growth, but we say that's still John. The substance of Johnny is still there. But the, outsternal, the exterior qualities have changed. That's what's, in a sense, going on with transubstantiation, with Eucharist, the substance. Well, actually, it's different. I, I take that back. Uh, it's very different, but the same substance accent distinction uh, is needed because we say the substance of bread and wine in the Eucharist no longer exists after the transubstantiation of the priest, the priest consecration. Instead, we have the, the substance of Jesus, his body and blood, his soul and divinity, but the remaining accidents of what was bread and wine. That's the middle step of the Eucharist, the real presence are kind of in the middle. But then, let's keep following those arrows that I've put on the handout. So we're kind of uh, bouncing from left, up, one step to the right, to the real presence. And finally, we're getting to the top step, the grace that's given to us in the Eucharist. The grace of spiritual nourishment through unity with Christ and his church. By the fact that we have the real presence, by the fact that we have the in-person presence of Christ, we are elevated, we are nourished spiritually through Christ and given union with him and with his members. And this nourishment is given to us for a journey. The journey from this life to the life of heaven. The journey from whatever is going on with you today, through your exams next week or the following week, to Texas State glory and beyond afterward. And the beyond is heaven. Texas State glory is good. God wants you to study for your exams. He wants you to do well on your exams. But ultimately, that's just a, a springboard to the life of heaven. Things are much better in heaven after exams, <laughs> both for students and professors. Now, there are a number of graces that are given by Christ in the Eucharist, but that fundamental grace of union with Christ and his members for spiritual nourishment is kind of the, the underlying foundation, the basic reality. Beyond that, or to say unpacking that, uh, we can think about the, the fact of grace being given uh, that is sanctifying. We can think about graces for particular actions, how Christ can move us in the Eucharist to a particular action. So for instance, by receiving Holy Communion in the morning, uh, a Catholic bobcat here may have the extra pep in his step in order to resist the temptation to go back to sleep. And instead, he says, no, uh, I will do that virtuous action today that Christ is calling me to do. I will do my homework. I will go and take care of uh, the homeless person in the soup kitchen that I've promised to come and help that day. That extra help can come from union with Christ in the Eucharist. Christ gives us help against future possible sin uh, because one is strengthened, one is not weak against the temptations that may 
lie around various corners of a college campus. Maybe there are no dangers at Texas State. Maybe all the dangers are down in San Antonio. And we're not down there, so we don't have to worry about it. But if it's possible that there are some sinful activities taking place uh, in San Marcos, reception of the Eucharist, communion with Christ, union with Christ can give us help against those temptations. And all of that leads us to uh, the resurrection of the body and the transformation of our souls in heaven. Now thinking about that, uh, in terms of those effects of the Eucharist, those effects are hard to pin down. As Catholics, we are very certain, and rightfully so, about the reality of the real presence, the reality that when the priest consecrates uh, the bread and wine, it becomes truly, objectively, the body and blood of Christ. We can say, yes, in the tabernacle is truly the body and blood of Christ. It's very certain for us. But can we say for certain that a particular action that uh, Joe Bobcat or uh, Mary Bobcat does later that afternoon after Holy Communion, that we can say that's a Eucharistic grace going on. It's tough to say. It could be a baptismal grace. It could be a grace that Christ gives even apart from the sacraments. What happens in the Eucharist, though, is that since it's daily food for the journey, if we look over the long term, at someone who's receiving Holy Communion daily, someone who's uniting himself or herself with Christ daily with the Eucharist, then we see the effects. We can see, ah, yeah, compared to where I was five years ago, things are much better now. I'm avoiding those temptations lurking around the corner of, you know, on the I-35 down to San Antonio and, and, and whatever's going down in San Antonio. I can, I can stay away from there and go to University Parish here at San Marcos with no problems. I'm not getting on that I-35 train to bad times in San Antonio. One can see that over the long term. That's how one sees Eucharistic graces, it seems to me. It's those slow changes in holiness that one sees in daily communicants. It's a type of indirect uh, proof of the graces of the Eucharist. If you was the kind of crowdsourcing of uh, proving those, those graces. Moving from the Eucharist in general, let's dive into how it's connected with each one of the sacraments, excuse me, which, with each one of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. The virtues of faith, hope, and charity move us through this Eucharistic dynamic and they are moved by the Eucharist. So we need faith, hope, and charity in order to live Eucharistic life, but we're also aided by the Eucharist to live faith, hope, and charity. Let's unpack it by going through the various virtues relating them to the Eucharist. First off, faith. The point of faith is God. God reveals himself to us and leads us to himself. You see this in the first quotation I put on page two of your handout. If we consider in faith, and most of these quotations I should mention are from St. Thomas and his Summa Theologiae, 
Uh, I put the shorthand uh, um, uh, references there. If you want, on page four, the last page, I've given various uh, references uh, for St. Thomas and other works. But most of our quotations are coming from St. Thomas himself this evening. Thomas on faith. He says that the object of faith, the point of faith, is God. Quote, if we consider in faith the formal aspect of the object, it is nothing else than the first truth. First truth is God. God is truth itself. For the faith of which we are speaking does not assent to anything except because it is revealed by God. Hence, the mean on which faith is based is the divine truth. If, however, we consider materially the things to which faith assents, they include not only God, but also many other things that, nevertheless, do not come under the aspect of faith except as bearing some relation to God, inasmuch as to it, through certain effects of the divine operation, man is helped on his journey towards the, the, towards the enjoyment of God. Consequently, from this point of view also, the object of faith is, in a way, the first truth, inasmuch as nothing comes under faith except in relation to God. Okay. Unpacking that. Basically, Thomas is saying, point of faith, what God is allowing us to see by raising up our intellects is God and everything else that is connected to God insofar as it's connected to God. So, for instance, you're walking down the street, uh, you are living the life of virtue, someone comes down the street, you don't know who that person is from Adam, but you know from faith, ah, this person is another creature from God. This person is loved by God. You wouldn't necessarily know that if you were certainly an atheist. Uh, and secondly, even if you're just working on rational reason, human reason alone, unaided by revelation, to know that someone can be a child of God, adopted by God the Father, is something only revealed to us by God himself. So our vision, if you will, is in faith lifted up to God, but then sees everything else from God's perspective. Everything else becomes, let's say, seen from a God's eye point of view. In terms of uh, this faith, it's given to us as well, Thomas will say, by the church. Given to us in creeds, defined by the Pope. And if one departs from that, one loses the virtue of faith. So Thomas is very clear that there's a unity to faith and one has the entirety of faith or one doesn't have it at all. So Thomas says, whoever does not adhere, I didn't put this on your handout, but this, this is in the Secunda Secunde, uh, question five. Whoever does not adhere as to an infallible and divine rule to the teaching of the church, which proceeds from the first truth manifested in Holy Scripture, has not the habit of faith, but holds that which is of faith otherwise than by faith. He who adheres to the teaching of the church as to an infallible rule assents to whatever the church teaches. Otherwise, if of the things taught by the church he holds what he chooses to hold and rejects what he chooses to reject, he no longer adheres to the teaching of the church as to an infallible rule, but to his own will. So basically, if one adopts what has been nicknamed a kind of cafeteria approach, says, well, okay, I kind of choose that teaching of Christ and his church, 
Uh, but I, I'm not so sure about that one. I, I don't really like that one, so I'm just going to leave that one aside. Uh, Thomas says that really isn't the virtue of faith because one is not assenting to God in his revelation as for his truth and seeing everything else from that one perspective. Because if we're just using our own intellects, unaided by God, raised not by his power, but by our own decision-making process, then it's just something working at the human level of reason, which is not the virtue of faith. Moving toward the Eucharist, the Eucharist has involved a struggle with faith since the very beginning. I read to you earlier uh, from St. John's Gospel, chapter 6. Uh, if we were to continue that quotation, I put this on your handout, quotation 4, we see a struggle about the Eucharist and faith. Quote, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. Let's skip to verse 60. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that do not believe. Believing is the mark of the virtue of faith. For Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Gift of God, the virtue of faith. And then, John 6, verse 66. 666. Bad line in Scripture here. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. They left. They left. They leave Jesus. John 6, 66. But it gets better after that. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. Faith. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So, what do we see here? The Eucharist is a test of faith. It demands faith, it requires faith, and we'll see it gives faith. It increases faith. Indeed, faith is one of the reasons for the very existence of the Eucharist. St. Thomas says, basically, Christ wanted to test us, just as we see happening here in these lines of John 6. So John, excuse me, Jesus gives us the Eucharist as a test of faith. In quotation five on your handout from St. Thomas now. The presence of Christ's true body and blood in the sacrament cannot be detected by sense. We can't just see it by our eyes. Well, we can see it, but the fact that it's not just bread and wine, but uh, it's no longer bread and wine, but it's the Eucharist, it's Jesus, that doesn't come from our physical sight. It comes from the sight of faith. Uh, restarting Thomas. The presence of Christ's true body and blood in the sacrament cannot be detected by sense nor understanding but by faith alone, which rests upon divine authority. 
Hence, on Luke 22, 19, this is my body which shall be delivered up for you. St. Cyril says, Doubt not whether this be true, but take rather the Savior's word with faith. For since he is the truth, he lies not. Now this is suitable, for it belongs to the perfection of faith, which concerns his humanity, just as it does his Godhead. According to John 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. And since faith is of things unseen, as Christ shows us as Godhead invisibly, so also in this sacrament, the Eucharist, he shows us his flesh in an invisible manner. So, God wants to test us in faith. Testing is not bad, per se, as we all wonderfully know with final exam week coming up. Tests themselves are not bad. They are a challenge for us to grow, to affirm the truth. So the Eucharist forces us to grow in faith, to be able to say, hmm, that looks like bread and wine, but I heard the priest say, this is my body, this is my chalice of my blood. So I know in faith that's not just bread and wine anymore. That is the Eucharist. That is Jesus. The Eucharist thus depends upon our Catholic faith. And we see this faith animated throughout the Mass. If one thinks about it, what's going on in the liturgy of the Word is the education of our faith. So we listen to uh, the Scriptures uh, are taught, and then in the liturgy of the Eucharist, the second part of the Mass, that faith is actualized for the giving to us of Christ's Eucharistic presence. Indeed, that also strengthens us in faith. We come to it in faith, but we also are strengthened in faith. How so? A test against faith, excuse me, a, a, a temptation against faith is idolatry to turn away from God to some sort of created good. The Eucharist gives us a practical way to worship the one true God, Jesus Christ, present to us. So we turn away from any temptations of the created world, and we turn to God. It's a very practical way to aid us in the life of faith, to aid us to be faithful to God. That's why, for instance, uh, folks nowadays, especially with the scourge of um, uh, sensual sins that captivate uh, vision, have found healing through the Eucharist, through Eucharistic adoration. So compared to the sinful gaze, for instance, of pornography, which we have to recognize is a big problem today, Eucharistic adoration, focusing on Christ, allows us to turn away from the idol of sensual sins to focus instead on God. That's the way our faith is able to be elevated by the Eucharist. Let's move now to hope. Hope is not just a feeling, although there is a passion of hope, an emotion of hope. Hope makes us tend to God, as I put on quotation six from St. Thomas. Hope makes us tend to God as to a good to be obtained finally and as to a helper strong to assist us. So in hope, God promises us himself. He, he gives us the outlook, the confidence to know that he is going to give us union with himself in heaven as our final beatitude and that he is going to help us get there. 
He's not just going to leave us to do it on our own. That is hope in its primary definition. St. Thomas has a, a wonderful explanation of how there can also be secondary helps to hope. So God is the primary help of hope, again, because the whole point of hope is God, the object of hope is God. God helps us along the way. But he also gives us secondary helps, including the Eucharist, the sacraments, more generally, as quotation 7 says. We ought not to seek from God any other goods except as ordered to eternal beatitude, whence hope principally indeed focuses on eternal beatitude with God, but hope focuses secondarily on other things that are sought from God as ordered to eternal beatitude. Those would be things like the sacraments, the scriptures, the magisterium of the church, those things that help us move toward eternal beatitude in God. A specific way that we have this secondary help is precisely the Eucharist. Because the Eucharist is Christ's presence among us, God's presence among us, not just kind of a Zoom presence, not just kind of like sending down little, you know, tidbits in email uh, 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 chains or uh, text messages, but because it's his very physical, substantial presence among us, that is a huge boost to our help, excuse me, to our hope. It is a help, and it's for our hope. If we remember how the Eucharist was instituted at the Last Supper, and if we remember the stable physical presence of Christ existing in the Eucharistic elements, it's a very consoling reality of friendship that the Eucharist gives to us. We're going to talk about friendship more with charity. But Thomas has a very beautiful way of bringing together the friendship of charity and the virtue of hope and the following quotation, quotation 8 on page 3 of your handout. This is my favorite quotation in all of St. Thomas. I hope you like it as much as I do. Thomas says, with a little intro for me, the truth that the Eucharist is Christ's true body and blood and not just a figure, quote, belongs to Christ's love, out of which for our salvation he assumed a true body of our nature. And because it is the special feature of friendship to live together with friends, as the philosopher Aristotle says, he promises us his bodily presence as a reward, saying, where the body is, there shall the egos be gathered together. Yet meanwhile, in our pilgrimage, he does not deprive us of his bodily presence, but unites us with himself in the sacrament through the truth of his body and blood. Hence he says, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Hence this sacrament is the sign of supreme charity and the uplifter of our hope from such familiar union of Christ with God. What Thomas is saying here is Christ could have left us alone without the benefit of the Eucharist when he knew that he was going to be crucified and killed and buried. He knew, too, that he was going to rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. He knew all that. And having been taught by Christ, we would have been so much the better. But Christ knew that, well, you know, friendship deserves something better. And the Eucharist is that something better, that in-person friendship. How do we know that? It's because we're the eagles. 
you probably you probably haven't heard of this uh, translation of the scriptures of Matthew 24 before, but it is a, a variant reading uh, that's in the Vulgate and it's in other um, manuscripts as well. The eagles have really good sight. As it says there, where the body is, there shall the eagles be gathered together. The eagles can see where an animal is from far away as they're flying around. The Christians, with their vision of faith, have great sight. They can see where the body of Christ is, and they're there. They're saying, I want to be with the Eucharist. I want to be with Christ in the Eucharist. So Thomas says, where the body is of Christ, there the eagles, the Christians are there. And why, why do we have this, again, from Christ as a sign of supreme charity and the uplifter of our hope? So the Eucharist is our spiritual food and drink for the journey, for that journey of hope to heaven. The Eucharist helps us along the way. We need hope in order to get to the Eucharist, to get ourselves out of bed in the morning, to get to Mass, to receive Holy Communion, but then the Eucharist is also boost, be furthered in hope. Let's now look at the last theological virtue, charity. Baptism is known as the sacrament of faith. Confirmation is known as the sacrament of hope and fortitude. And the Eucharist is known as the sacrament of charity. Why is that? Why is the Eucharist particularly linked with this theological virtue? It's because charity fundamentally is about union and friendship with God. As I put on your handout, quotation nine, definition of charity from St. Thomas, since there is a communication between man and God, inasmuch as he communicates his beatitude to us, some kind of friendship must needs be based on this same communication of which it is written, God is faithful, by whom you are called unto the fellowship of his Son. The love that is based on this communication is charity. Wherefore, it is evident that charity is the friendship of man for God. End quote. So charity involve, involves God's gift of his goodness, his very self, his life, to us so that we become good. Our goodness is not from ourselves. It's, if we have any goodness, it's from God. And in that goodness, in that holy state, we love God in return. That's what charity is. Our love of God in reaction to his love for us, his life in us. What about the love of neighbor? Well, that's also part of charity, but it's secondary to our love of God. As Thomas says in quotation 10, God is the principal object of charity while our neighbor is loved out of charity for God's sake. If we were to love our neighbor at the same level of God, then we'd be making our neighbor into an idol, which we can't do. So charity involves God's movement of us to him, and from that union we're united with all other creatures insofar as they're known and loved by God. Now notice how similar the virtue of charity is to the very dynamic of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is God's gift of himself. Christ gives himself in the Eucharist so that we can be moved back toward him. Same thing is happening with charity. God gives of himself in order to bring us so that we move back to him. 
Charity is signified by the Eucharist and brought about by the Eucharist. So if we think about what's going on at the bottom left of my picture uh, chart of the Eucharist on page one of your handout, there is a signification of the many that are brought into one. Many grains of wheat are united in one bread. Many grapes are united in one wine. That's a sign of charity, union in multiplicity. Furthermore, there's the charity of Christ and his priests as expressed in the consecration formula. This is my body which will be given up for you. Christ gives his body for us. This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So charity is involved there. Note that the bread and wine must already be one, must be unified before they can be used as the matter for the Eucharist. The Eucharist requires charity, it requires spiritual communion. Charity and union is a precondition for the Eucharist. So that's why the state of grace is required in order to receive the Eucharist, receive Holy Communion. So as uh, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 11, as I put on your handout, quotation 11. He says uh, that there are divisions among you, but whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul is saying, if you don't have charity before you get to the Eucharist, you're not going to be able to live well with the Eucharist. Indeed, the Eucharist is going to be harmful to you. So you need charity before the Eucharist. Indeed, if we have the opposite of that charity, the opposite of communion with men and women, we have a lack of communion with Christ. So we need to be in communion with Christ, we need to be in communion with his people in order to live Eucharistically. We need to be in union with his church and the members of his church, the leaders of his church, the Pope, the bishops, the good Christians, the saints, and then we're able to live Eucharistically. If we think about how charity involves God's communication of himself, we see this in the Eucharist in the real presence. The real presence involves God's communication of his goodness in order to bring us in that final step of the Eucharist to final union with Christ. If we think about various effects of the Eucharist, specifically, they're tied to charity. So for instance, how the Eucharist involves the increase of charity. Uh, St. Thomas speaks about that eloquently on or in quotation 12, which for the sake of time, I will allow you to read on your own. Basically, he talks about the fire of charity being stirred alive more fully. If you will, it's like Eucharist is like a poker in the, in the fire to kind of get things, get the coals, um, you know, alivened, uh, burning more brightly in the Eucharist. And that leads us then to charitable actions. We see this specifically in the life of the church in terms of what is what's called the ecclesial dimension of the Eucharist. 
Eucharist is a marker of who is in the church, who is a member of Christ's mystical body. As St. Thomas says, uh, in a quotation I didn't number, well, 13, I guess, 13, you know, a little, little thing at the bottom, three, the unity of the mystical body is the fruit of the true body received. So the unity of the church, the corpus mysticum, is the fruit of the true body, the verum corpus of the Eucharist, Christ truly present in the Eucharist. And that is what's going on in the life of the church and Eucharist. So as Saint, excuse me, as Saint Paul says in quotation 14, the cup of blessing which we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So Eucharist, connection with Christ. But then if you continue down in 1 Corinthians 10, Saint Thomas, excuse me, Saint Paul says that if you do not participate in this, if you go for the cup of the demons, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of, of the demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons, one or the other. We're either in the church of Christ or we're in the church of those who are not with Christ. And we don't want to be with the second. We don't want to be in the church of the demons. And that's why, consequently, St. Thomas, when he's thinking about how the ecclesial life of the church works with respect to Eucharist, he has to draw distinctions. And the church draws distinctions between those who are in the church and living the full life of the church and those who are not. So St. Thomas says heretical, schismatic, excommunicate, or even sinful priests, although they have the power to consecrate the Eucharist, yet they do not make a proper use of it. On the contrary, they sin by using it. But whoever communicates with another who is in sin becomes a share in his sin. Consequently, it is not lawful to receive communion from them or to assist at their Mass. Thomas is talking about how we need to be in communion with the pastors of the church, to be in that ecclesial context, that context of charity, the context of union, the context of friendship, in order to live the life of the Eucharist. And Thomas's critique here applies to anything that is not fully united to Christ and his church. Thomas is speaking here specifically of unworthy priests. He says it's those who are indigne, those who receive or minister unworthily. So we can think nowadays there have unfortunately been priests who have been unworthy ministers of the great gift that has been given to them. That's a great blight against the life of the church. So those who are heretics, schismatics, excommunicate, sinful priests, that's a blight against the charity, against the Eucharistic element aspect of the life of the church. We're seeing this in a very live situation right now in the world uh, if we look at what's going on in the Ukraine. There are uh, Ukrainian Russian Orthodox Christians so Ukrainians who are by nationally Ukrainians, by nationality Ukrainians, who are tied to the bishop, the patriarchate of Moscow, who are now separating in charity because of the war. They have no differences in terms of faith, but they're separating in terms of what is a just war here. And the Ukrainians are saying, no, you either have to decry this war 
or we're not able to be sober in the Eucharist together. There's a schism that's basically taking place. Um, that sort of schismatic activity has taken place in the Catholic Church more recently in terms of uh, after Vatican II. So for instance, the SSPX, the Priestly Fraternity of St. Pius X, has had a kind of schismatic activity going on with respect to the pastors of the church. Uh, I saw another example recently. You may have seen the movie uh, Father Stu uh, with Mark Wahlberg. Kind of a new movie has come out. It's about an ex-boxer who's become a priest, or he became a priest. Uh, Mark Wahlberg, the actor, is now a very devout Catholic, but he had a rather troubled uh, youngster period. And he was turned around by priests that helped him out. I don't know the whole story, but it's, it's public news uh, that that priest got in some sort of trouble uh, more recently and is now no longer a priest in good standing. They haven't said what, what the problem is. So it's not something like child abuse, because uh, that would be made public nowadays. But some, something he did said that he's no longer worthy to function as a priest. So we need to have those links of charity, the links of holiness to live the Eucharistic life, but then to be boosted up in Eucharistic life. Let us conclude. St. Thomas wants us to see and follow God, to trust in God, and to unite with God. The center point of tonight's talk has been about God, union with God, following God, holding to God. Indeed, God should be the focus of our lives. There's nothing else more important. Thinking about these issues, St. Thomas especially hits on another virtue that I have not talked about, the virtue of devotion. Devotion is the will to do readily what concerns the service of God. When St. Thomas talks about the Eucharist, he frequently reuses the word devotion. For Thomas, that devotion has a Eucharistic flavor to it, if you will, or the Eucharist brings out devotion. We can see this, for instance, in the life of the saints, how they have been increasingly over the course of the church's history more and more devoted to the Eucharist and doing more and more devotional acts toward the Eucharist. So, for instance, Eucharistic adoration, as we know today, is something that's grown up over the course of the centuries, something the saints, the church, has realized as something good and holy and life-giving. In devotion, what would St. Thomas say to Texas State students? How would he say you should grow in your Eucharistic life of the theological virtues? When I originally prepared this talk, it was for a talk that was going to take place during Lent, and then COVID intervened. Uh, however, uh, even though we think of Lent as a penitential time, and I'm going to kind of skip over some things uh, that I had prepared that would be good for Eucharistic devotion during Lent, let me just say that it's even more possible in Eastertide to do penitential practices because we now have the life of the resurrection giving us confidence that hey, eternal life and energy have been given to us. We can live penances. But the entire life of penance feeds into the life of the Eucharist and our devotion to the Eucharist and our life of faith, hope, and charity. 
In terms of St. Thomas's Eucharistic devotion, he had two particular practices. He used to say Mass early in the morning, and his priest secretary would serve that Mass. And then Thomas would turn around, switch sides, and he would serve Mass for his secretary. Which, you know, if you think about a big guy, big, you know, famous theologian, kind of taking time to be the altar boy for another Mass, this kind of shows devotion. So attending a second Mass and being the altar boy uh, shows devotion every single day, doing that as the second Mass. Secondly, St. Thomas would spend about 3.5 hours in the chapel every night. Over the course of time, that has real effects in one's life. I think St. Thomas would primarily tell you that for whatever Eucharistic devotion you want to do, maybe it's going to daily Mass, maybe it's Eucharistic adoration, maybe it's praying before uh, the Eucharist in the tabernacle, Maybe it's making acts of spiritual communion as you're walking in the hills and thinking, how in the world am I going to, you know, mount that next hill to my next class at Texas State? Oh, Jesus, how you not myself to you and the Most Holy Eucharist? Whatever your devotion is going to be, I would suggest Thomas would say, you need to stick with it for the long haul. Pick a devotion, a Eucharistic devotion, and practice it over the long haul. The Eucharist works slowly, progressively but it is indeed transformative. Have you ever wondered why the hosts that Catholics receive in Holy Communion are small? About that big, about an inch in diameter. That's, there's an aspect of respect for the sacred species here so that they can be easily placed in the mouth. But given how important the Eucharist is, given how big it is, let's say in terms of importance, it's a bit incongruous how small the hosts are. Theologians have seen this size disparity as a theological sign. The Eucharist is not designed to fill us physically. The Eucharist is designed to convey the true, physically present, substantial presence of Christ. And the spiritual life given in the Eucharist, the life that animates our faith, hope, and charity, is not designed to remain on earth. It's designed to push us toward heaven. So the physical smallness of the Eucharist is a sign of the limits of this earthly life. And indeed that the Eucharist itself is transitory. There's no Eucharist in heaven. There's only Christ in heaven. We have Christ on earth in the Eucharist. But we have it in signs. In heaven, we have Christ face to face, as we see each other face to face. So the Eucharist transits us to God, it brings us to God, and then it passes away. This is the eschatological dimension of the sacrament, the dimension of the Eucharist that foreshadows the life of heaven and brings us to the life of heaven. This is what St. Thomas teaches us about the Eucharist. This is what St. Thomas teaches us about the theological virtues. We see and follow God, we trust in God, we unite with God through the Eucharist. Thank you for your attention this evening. Thank you so much, Father. I appreciate it. All right. Well, we got about seven, eight minutes or so uh, for questions. So um, in some, uh, like, Protestant beliefs, you see a low sacramentology where, like, they skip through, like, the Bread of Life discourse in mm -hmm. John 6, and they say, um, the my words are, are of spirit and life, mm -hmm. and then that, and then they therefore conclude that it's just, like, a symbolic presence. Is there, like, a a fittingness to why it's so obvious that Jesus is talking about physically his, his body and blood, or is it just 
you simply have to port to like just like the grammatical structure of what's happening. Um, okay, so the question is: there is there a fittingness to what Jesus is talking about in John six, um, or is it? Do we just need to go to grammatic grammatical structure? By grammatical structure, do you mean? This is my body. Uh, this is uh, this is my yeah. blood, mm -hmm. or and and kind of bracket that line uh, of John six. Um, let's see here, John six sixty three. That one. Mm -hmm. so, no, uh, we would uh, Catholics take the scriptures in their integrity. All of the scriptures. We even take John six sixty six. We have to know what the bat's up is as well. So. Um, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail. We would take that line, John 6, 63, as saying that we need to understand the Eucharist from the perspective of faith, the spirit, the Holy Spirit that gives faith to us. The flesh is of no avail. We would understand that as our flesh, our, our human perspective. Reason alone cannot understand what is going on in the Eucharist, cannot understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, this is my flesh. This is my blood. Um, because if you look at, um, uh, if one thinks about what's going on there with John 6.63, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no veil. Uh, why would Jesus be saying everything previous to that as well? And note too, in the, in the lines afterward, Jesus does not walk back. He does not take back what he said earlier. And if, it was, if it's all just spiritual, it's all just kind of like, yeah, you know, okay, it's kind of a nice idea. Yeah, Jesus is life. His flesh is life. We, we take his flesh. We eat his flesh. All this, all, that's very, oh, it's like Zen. Mm. You know, it's just kind of, um, we kind of be spiritual. Why would people leave in John 6, 66? You know, what's offensive about just, mm. uh, no. Jesus is saying everything before that was true. But we have to understand that from perspective of faith, given to us by the Holy Spirit. Good, good question. In the Tertiopars question 80, Thomas is like opening up his discourse on the Eucharist. And I was reading this week on his treatment of spiritual communion, that he says that it um, has the same effects, although maybe in a certain natural imperfectness, as um, physical communion. Could you maybe speak a little bit about uh, that, uh, about what is spiritual communion to the audience? Sure. So the question for those on Zoom line who didn't hear, um, St. Thomas talks about spiritual communion and uh, that it gives the effects of physical communion. Uh, so what's going on with spiritual communion? So St. Thomas talks about this. I, I'm pretty sure it's question 79 of the Tertia Pars. Um, so spiritual communion is when we... Um, and there are a couple steps here. Uh, first off, there is the spiritual communion in quotation marks that is charity. What we were talking about tonight in terms of the fundamentals of friendship that we have uh, with Christ in charity. That's the basis for any type of Eucharistic communion. From that basis of spiritual communion in quotation marks, we come to Mass, we come into the presence of the Eucharistic Lord, and we are moved to receive Christ, to adore him, and to receive him physically in physical communion. Um, now, what happens if one is not able to receive physical communion? Let's say one is in the middle of Siberia. There, there's no mass around. Uh, 
It's COVID times and one's locked in one's you know, room and one can't get to mass and the priest is not allowed to come uh, visit you, does that mean you're deprived of the graces of the Eucharist? No, because from that foundational spiritual communion, one can make an act of spiritual communion properly speaking. So a, a proper act of spiritual communion is when we make an act of faith and love toward the Eucharist specifically, while already having the baseline spiritual friendship with Christ, such that with that act of faith and charity in the Eucharist, asking to be united to Christ in the Eucharist, Christ can give us the graces of physical communion. So that if one's in the middle of Siberia, one is not deprived of Eucharistic graces. Thomas teaches that, the church teaches that. Council of Trent teaches that. Now, there is a kicker. Uh, one, one thing I'll add to what um, Nicholas was uh, uh, specifying. St. Thomas raises the question, well, if we can receive spiritual graces, spiritual communion, why bother with physical communion? Pretty sure this is question 70. Uh, if, if you're looking up in the Summa, I could look it up quick enough, but for the sake of time. Pretty sure it's question 79, article 4 or 5, and it's, it's like the odd 2 or 3. Thomas says, you know, why bother physical communion? Thomas uh, says physical communion gives spiritual graces uh, more surely and in a greater, to a deeper extent, than spiritual communion alone. Which makes sense for us as Catholics. The, the sacraments convey grace to us in their physicality. When a, when a baby is baptized with water poured over the baby's head, that is, and, and the priest says, I baptize in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, that is transformative. The physical action brings about spiritual transformation. Same thing with the Eucharist. Physical communion is better than spiritual communion per se. It builds upon spiritual communion, but it's better than it because grace is given to us in a, a truly sacramental fashion, and a sacrament has to be physical. There's no truly, there's no purely spiritual sacrament. Sacraments are always physical. Um, now, one quick caveat, and then I'll shut up. Just because one receives physical communion doesn't mean one is automatically going to receive more grace than someone who receives spiritual communion. If one is living a lackadaisical life, whereas it's Saint Mother Teresa who is locked in a room in the middle of Siberia and can't get to Holy Communion physically. She can't get to a church. She has more, compared to Joe, Joe lackadaisical schmo, who's just kind of like, you know, walking to church, like, okay, I'll go to communion. Uh, okay, where's my, where's my football game I'm going to? Uh, Mother Teresa, she's got a lot of devotion. She can make an act of spiritual communion, deprived of being at Mass and receiving physically, and she could receive more grace from that than Joe Lackadaisical Schmo, receiving physically at Mass. Okay, great question. So I have, Professor. A, I have a quick follow-up on this. So over the last two years, we had a lot of Masses on TV when, yeah. when um, you know, there were the secular bars on attending church. So a Attending Mass via 
TV? Is that attending mass? Is that just spiritual communion? Or is there something physical and actually able, being able to see the mass, even if it's through the screen? Okay, so the question on Zoom land is, for those who are attending mass only via TV or Zoom, uh, is there something spiritual going on there? Is that a fair yeah, summary? Sure. Okay. Um, it's definitely not mass. Mass is, a, is a, as a sacrament, is physical. It can be, though, that people's spiritual devotion is aided by having the visual cues of what's going on on the TV. But what's going on the TV is not the real mass. It's it's a it's more kind of a, a, a um, it's a, again an impetus. It's it's kind of a a reminder of what's going on. And one can spiritually unite oneself with the mass that's taking place, and with the people who are celebrating mass, and with the priests who are who are celebrating mass, and the people who are joined around him, uh, in order to be uh, to grow in faith, hope, and charity. And one can receive graces from that. Now, it can also be the case that people's devotion can be lessened by just zooming mass and just watching TV. Because one can kind of be like, well, okay, I'm flipping the channels, and oh, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a flip to, t I'm a flip to, uh, to the mass, you know, whatever local mass. But I've still got my popcorn here, and um, I'm gonna get some soda. Um, you know, I'm attending mass. It's good. You know, well, maybe it's better. Maybe it's better that you turn off the TV at that point, and you go to the little shrine that you made in your in your house in your bedroom with a crucifix, and you get down on a kneeler, and maybe you get out your rosary and and pray your rosary, and maybe that's going to be more uh, more beneficial for you than watching the Zoom Mass. Okay. So it, it, we, we have to make distinction. It's, it's a great question, and it's something that people have really been uh, struggling with. And some people love uh, their COVID Zoom Masses. Other people have just been turned off by them uh, incredibly. And a lot depends on our subjective uh, life of devotion and making the most of whatever opportunities we have to be the saints that Christ is calling us to be. Yeah. Time for one more question. Okay, I'll... It's not a question, it's a comment. Oh, okay. comment. It's a both and. Uh, yes, physically present is better, but I think it's a both and, and we don't want to substitute it, but there are senior citizens now who physically can't be there, so um, it's, a, it's a tough. But um, I think our faith yes. and our hope and our charity is there. Yes. So that's that's what I was saying. It can be it can be good, and it can can be for some people better to do something else. I think this the gentleman had a question. No. Yes. Well, last question. I think you mentioned with the bullet point fifteen about the idea of heretical and schematic. Schematic. Yeah. I had two questions about this. First off, all priests are sinful in some ways. So there's the question of what that term means. 
Mm-hmm. Like exactly how sinful does a priest have to be for it to be, quote unquote, a sinful priest? And then secondly, there's the question regarding mm, the responsibility of the faithful to try to figure out how sinful a priest is. Yeah. And then also just kind of whose responsibility is it mostly? And I guess I have some others, but that's probably, that's probably enough. Okay. So the question is, uh, if priests are sinful, how are the laity supposed to know uh, with which priests they should associate? Uh, so T- St. Thomas raises this question. It's a good question. Um, when he's talking about sinful priests here, he's talking first off about mortally sinful priests, the priests who do mortal sins, grave sins. Um, and in terms of uh, people's participation with them, they should avoid priests who are sinning publicly in a grave fashion. Uh, especially when the public sins are bearing upon the life of the church. So in terms of, for instance, heresy or schism or excommunicable actions, those bear upon the life of the church or upon the priest's personal activity in such a public way that it'd be detrimental in a kind of a a scandalous fashion for the life of the church. Um, St. Thomas distinguishes that from if a priest is sinning mortally, but people don't know. So if people do not know, like let's say, God willing, this never happens, so we'll just, just game something out. We're all adults here. We don't need to be, you know, we can talk fictional stories. Let's say there's a priest who likes to go rob banks at night. No one knows about it. He's really good. He doesn't get caught. Should the laity, uh, when they show up at his morning mass, uh, do anything? Well, they don't know. Are they impacted by it? They could be, but not in a way that's culpable for them. They would be impacted indirectly by the fact that that priest is not living the holy life that he should be. So it's much better to have St. John Vianney, patron saint of parish priests, it's much better to have St. John Vianney as your parish priest. Uh, rather than Father uh, Bank Robber. So we pray for our priests that they be good St. John Vianney's. Um, so we prefer, okay, so we prefer St. John Vianney. But if one does not know, if one does not know that, that Father Joe is actually Father Joe Bank Robber, um, one can still be a saint despite Father Joe Bank Robber. Because Christ still gives himself in the sacraments through that priest, even through a sinful priest. St. Thomas will affirm, them, affirm this even for these heretical, schismatic, and excommunicate priests. Christ still gives himself in the sacraments. Uh, and so that if people are not trying to participate in the bank robbing life of Father Joe bank robber, they are innocent of any sin themselves, and they can still benefit from the sacraments that Father Joe bank robber gives to them. So again, the important thing, well, it's, not, it's a both end, if I can use uh, the other lady's uh, language. Uh, we want holy priests, and we need to be holy ourselves wherever we find ourselves, with whatever priests or laity that we work with. Maybe someone's spouse is not St. Mary or St. Joseph, 
doesn't mean that one shouldn't try to be a saintly spouse oneself. Maybe one's parents are not perfect. Maybe one's kids are not perfect. Doesn't mean we ourselves can't try to strive for the life of holiness with whatever opportunities we have before us. Um, great. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight. Please give our speaker a round of applause. If you'd like to know more about...